Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. It is August 24th, 2017. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And I am joining you from rainy Missoula tonight. So we had... Um, some moisture in the past four or five hours, and at one point it was dropping pretty hard. So the good news is is that um, that should help out with many, many wildfires um, in forest across western Montana. Although I did hear um, from some, some members of my family that South Helena, which is about a two or so hour drive from Missoula, experienced some apparently lightning-caused uh, fires tonight in the south hills of Missoula. So... Montana continues to burn. So um, that's uh, the news from, I guess, Lake Missoulagon um, and the exciting things going on here. And joining me tonight, as always, um, is Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. Good evening from Oklahoma City, where we have been sending many, many prayers for, for rain north. And so I'm glad to hear those have, have been answered. We have had some uh, exciting weather. We had a real deluge just a couple nights ago. I would photograph the clearest wall cloud drop out of a of a cloud just north of our school and thankfully there was not a tornadic following but uh yeah it's uh exciting to be back at school and looking forward i think to the normalcy of the school year starting and the the newness wearing off which that will that will happen soon so Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, yeah. Well, so where should we start tonight, sir? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. We could talk about Google. Google announced a new operating system, right, Oreo? It did. That's correct. Um, on Monday during the Eclipse shenanigans. And um, and actually, Wes, I have to say, your photos of the shadows um, created by the solar eclipse were some of my favorite, and I wish I had thought to look down that day as opposed to looking up, because especially um, in where I was, which wasn't um, uh, near prime time, it was, and we had about 91% uh, coverage, um, which you know is definitely something interesting to look at. And I did spend some time in my scientifically proven uh, glasses, uh, looking up at the sky and, and, what, and kind of marveling at it all, but. Um, during that time, um, Google um, announced that Android O, which uh, is the newest version of their operating system, Android, it's the version 8.0, finally has a name. Um, uh, for those of you that are unaware of how Android works, um, since Android um, started, they've adopted a letter that they then turn into a dessert. So there's been Android Ice Cream Sandwich and Android Jelly Bean and Android Kit Kat and Android Nougat. And currently, Marshmallow, um, I'm sorry, that Nougat's the current one, Marshmallow's previous one. Um, and then Android O has been suspected all this time to be Android Oreo um, or Android Android Orange Slice was the other one of them. But Android Oreo was announced on Monday. And um, it's really interesting. In fact, we've got a couple articles tonight that I think would be worth talking about in regards to phones and operating systems and, and also viability of, of a phone long term. But the very bottom line is, is that um, Android O 
um, will bring many, many new features to the few phones that get um, Android O. And the phones right now that, that are ready to go with Android O include um, the Nexus Pixel phone. I'm sorry, not the Nexus Pixel, the Google Pixel phone, which is two varieties of phones released in 2016. And then there are two 2015 phones, the Nexus um, I think it's 6P and 5X is the name of the model numbers that will receive Android O um, in a rolling um, rollout of, of that um, operating system. And it brings a lot of interesting new features. Um, it also uh, has a number of tweaks on things like battery life and an attempt to make it uh, you know, even a more functional operating system. So I guess I should start with, um, uh, I believe, Wes, that you are uh, an entirely Apple family. Is that true of your phone still? It is for our phones, yes. I did buy a Nexus 7 tablet, I guess, about maybe three years ago, or four years, something like that. Um, so I've dabbled a little bit. But, yeah, this is this, the reason this is interesting to me is <clears throat> we've been using some Android-based digital signage players at school, and our staff member who is, is primarily responsible for that <clears throat> has lamented that it is on Android 4.4, and evidently, and there's a special build that, that we're using for that. And anyway, from a security standpoint, you know, that's not great. Um, because what, what number is Oreo? Is it like nine or is it eight? Do you know, do you know what? It's, uh, uh, Oreo's eight. It is eight. Okay. So yeah, so we're, you know, we are, we are behind. And it's just, it's interesting as far as the way in which the Android ecosystem is fractured and the difficulty with which, um, you know, Google has in terms of people upgrading, and that's a, a complex thing. And, and and I think it probably speaks as far as the control of your hardware, you know, with Apple controlling their hardware and just a different different ecosystem. But the article that's in there from August 21st, which is Eclipse Day, is from Mac Rumors, and they've got a graph down there at the bottom of the article showing the fractured nature of the Android ecosystem. And so we've got... You know, somewhere around a third running marshmallow, a third lollipop, and then the other third, you know, divided between Kit Kat jelly bean, ice cream sandwich, gingerbread, and nougat. So, right. I, uh, it, it is, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think the reliability that we have, for instance, with AirPlay at school is, is phenomenal. Um, we're having more and more teachers, you know, using an Apple TV. Um, we've got, we've had a, we're, we're working on our network as far as bandwidth and, and increasing, you know, density for access points and things like that. But by and large, it's been rock solid. And my wife who's uh, started, uh, our second day today, uh, in the third grade classroom, new classroom at our school was just commenting how she was loving, you know, just being able to be anywhere in, in the room on the floor, you know, as far as with her kids reading in the laptop and one of our first grade teachers doing that too. So anyway, it's good to see uh, Android continuing to move forward. You know, we need to have choices. Uh, I definitely am not promoting a monopolistic landscape for, for computing, but I, I do think that, Android continues to lag in some of the features that they talk about here with picture-in-picture -picture support and notification dots and, you know, some of this other stuff. I mean, it just kind of seems like they're chasing Apple a little bit. So, right. you know, well, that's my take. And I think part of it, too, is that the the, the great thing about the Apple versus um, uh, Google fight here in regards to mobile operating systems is they are pushing each other a lot. And, in fact, 
one of the things I think has been really great is that I think both operating systems are basically functionally equal and they keep adopting things that appear in the other operating system after a generation or two. For example, notifications are infinitely better on iOS devices now because Android's pushed them in the right direction in regards to how to do, you know, pull down notification shades and then make those notifications as rich as possible. And so I think that's an extremely good piece of news. Um, this news to me is, is really great news except for two problems. The, the, one of them, and to be clear, I'm an Android phone user. I have been now for four years, and I'm very happy um, on the Android operating system. But, um, you know, I'll give you an example of where I won't get um, Android O on either of the two phones that I have available to me. One of them is this is a three-year-old Galaxy Note 4, and the reason why I have this is because you know, I bought it used. It was dirt cheap. The reason why I wanted this is because when I travel, I like to utilize a big, thick battery pack on it. And this is the last generation of, of Galaxy Note phone that has a removable battery, which means that I can uh, purchase or I have purchased a case from a, an outfit called Zero Lemon that built these really ridiculous brick cases that, you know, uh, increase the size and weight of it. But it also means the battery lasts for three days. So. Um, when I'm traveling, it's, I don't use it at home. Obviously, I use my nice Svelte case when I'm at home. But when I'm traveling, I like to utilize a big, thick battery because that becomes you know, kind of my center. I, I use it for for hotspot tethering. Obviously, it's a phone, as a communication device. And, you know, when I'm traveling in particular, I don't have as much access to, um, you know, to, to charging. So... Um, That's a 10,000 milliamp extended battery yeah. when I looked up for the Note 3. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's bigger than, than most even premium laptop batteries. And it's and you probably see the pictures um, on there that the zero-limit battery is ridiculous. Like, it turns the phone into a brick. And, you know, I, I have... But on an airplane, that's uh, maybe ideal. Yeah, exactly. And because it, it, it lasts forever, basically. And, um, you know, so... Uh, that's sad to me. This is, doesn't, even, doesn't even have the newest version. It doesn't have 7.0 Nougat. This has 6.0 Marshmallow. And, again, it's good enough, and I don't have any problems with it. And although I love all the new features in, you know, Android um, uh, a Nougat and Android Oreo, um, the, the bottom line is is that I won't get access to those unless I update phones. And what's interesting is that Android is part of a, a larger group of um, manufacturers of phones. Google's a member of this. Samsung is a member of this. LG is a member of this. Uh, Lenovo, which makes um, the Motorola phones now, um, is a member of this. It's the Open Handset Alliance. And one of the things they do is they promise that they'll do two years of updates um, after a phone is released. And I just don't think two years of updates is enough. Like, one of the things I think Apple has done that's very admirable is that the latest versions of iOS are available back to, I believe it's the iPhone 5, which means that you know, we're talking about quite some time, um, um, you know, since those devices have been out. And although they don't always get the new features, you know, Apple is happy to provide an updated version of that operating system four or five years afterwards. And part of that's because Apple's famous for building really hardy hardware, right? Like they, they have great build quality. So physically laptops, desktops, phones, tablets last for a very long time. But, you know, when you're talking about a premium phone, and obviously I purchased this one used and not free, but, um, you know, this was a premium phone in its time. It probably retailed at six, seven, eight hundred dollars um, uh, if you bought it just off the shelf unlocked. And the, the bottom line is, is that this phone is perfectly a perfectly good phone. Right. There's nothing wrong with this. It's fast enough that I, I, it has a rechangeable or changeable battery. So I'm able to purchase a brand new battery from Amazon and refresh the battery. And 
I'm a power user and this phone works just fine for me. And I, I think that we need to start having an ongoing conversation about, you know, how is it that we can last, have computers last, right? Like have the technology we've purchased, especially when we invest in a premium hardware, you know, how do we make this last over time? And, you know, that's, that's where, you know, I, I feel a little sad when Android O is, is released and it's available now for, you know, phones for just the past two years that Google has put out. I know that's never going to make it to my phone, which is a three-year-old Android phone. And, you know, considering the retail price of this three years ago, I think it's perfectly legitimate for, um, phone manufacturers to, um, you know, continue for three, four, five, even six years after they're released. Hey, you know, we spoke of eclipses. I don't, if you could move your microphone just a little bit to one side, as you sit back, there's almost a complete microphone eclipse <laughs> in terms of being able to see you. So I don't know if, if that's possible, but I, I bet that would be do a little side mic action. How's, how's that? Go. That's excellent. Yes. <laughs> so hiding behind the mic. Hey, can you see me? By the way, Peggy said I, I was looking at like pixelated dots. So um, it was happening earlier, but it seems to be fixed. Okay, I shut my my video back or shut it off and turn it back on. So this is my my first iPad, perhaps connected at TechSR. Although maybe maybe I did this one other time, but forgot forgot to bring home my backpack and my charging cable today. <laughs> so we're using borrowed devices. So and you're kind of going in and out of pixelation, just to let you know. Okay. Well, if the audio cuts out, um, yeah, let, let me know. I can okay. always push the pause button for the family here if need be. Oh, do you know what, though? <laughs> Actually, that reminds me. Uh, I bet this will help because my wife's device is on our circle circle uh, with Disney, and so I need to make her iPad unmanaged. So let's see if that makes a difference because that means that it will no longer, it'll no longer go through the um, – the device for filtering. Ta-da. There you go. Let's see if that's better. Okay. So I'm, I'm very curious, though. What caused you to jump the, the Apple ship? Because had, hadn't you been an iPhone user since the beginning? Um, well, beginning is a, a strong word because the iPhone wasn't available in Montana um, until 2010. So we didn't oh. have a carrier here that carried an iPhone. You could buy one and hack together a SIM solution that worked. But, um, yeah, that's and that's part of what, what I've been less um, – um, less monogamous to the Apple phone ecosystem because I was a latecomer to it. Um, and I did carry um, an iPhone around for, I think it was three years before I jumped to Android. And, and you know, I, I, I had a cousin once that was uh, um, in the regional management of a, of a cell carrier um, that they managed a lot of stores. And, and he had a really great line for this that I think is very applicable. He said, you know, in 2000, whatever it was, 13, 14, 15, 16, Android and iOS are functionally the same operating system, right? That they can both do basically the same thing. You won't find a lot of features in one that don't exist in the other. And the way he said, the way he described it is it's the difference between buying a super high-end sports car that, you know, um, you just admire and maybe shine up once in a while or buying a, um, you know, a 40 or 50-year-old car that's also beautiful but that you have to kind of tweak and, and play with all the time. You like to play with the engine um, and, and tweak it as a um, operating system. And I think that Android and iOS have, have a similar phenomenon to that. Like, obviously, Apple has the just work phenomenon going for, for, for iPhones, um, I am still stunned about how well those devices work in concert with one another. If you have an iPad and an iPhone and a MacBook, like they see each other, data magically appears uh, from one or the other. It's a really eloquent ecosystem. 
But Android um, does allow you to tweak a lot of things that you don't otherwise aren't really able to tweak in iOS. Now, they've been made a lot of inroads in that. Um, I was interested to see, for example, um, I reset my iPad a couple of weeks ago because I was having some problems downloading some apps. And so a reset fixed that for me. And what was interesting about that phenomenon was I saw you could finally delete a lot of the Apple apps off of the iPad and go with, you know, alternatives. Can you do you that know, with map with maps yet? Does maps um, let you? I, I think you can actually. Oh, so that's great. Well, and that's really good news for those that don't want to be locked into the standard apps, whereas I think the, you know, um, app developers are oftentimes taking standard apps to come with phones, doing a much better job of developing them to become a more useful tool. And in Android, you can choose everything, like everything on Android. The standard is, is up for debate, so you can download, you know, literally 200 different web browsers and choose one as the default. You can choose from, you know, dozens of GPS apps and one as the default. And that's why I've been very tempted by that. And I can't really explain why, but, you know, I've gone from being 100% Apple to where now, you know, about 85% of my time spent is either a Windows PC, um, uh, either laptop or desktop or a Chromebook. And, um, you know, I like that because it allows me the opportunity to, you know, to support others in that in our organization. We already have another guy who's super into Apple. But, um, yeah, it's I'm now, a, you know, whatever's in my hands is the best device available sort of thing. I'll, I'll just say, though, that the AirPlay functionality, again, thinking about schools and a school lens, I mean, it's a game changer. I want every one of our teachers at our school to be able to readily wirelessly send their content to their screen, whether they're using their laptop or their desktop. And um, I was just today looking at some options for how we could – play a little bit with, with Chromecast right. and, and trying to do some of that. Um, but I don't have enough experience with Chromecast to be able to definitively say if it rocks or not. My perception is that it's not manageable at the enterprise level the yeah. way that AirPlay is, which is really important with schools and limited bandwidth. Right. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit? You've got the the phones are expensive articles. You want to talk talk a little yeah. bit about those because that's kind of a segue to this topic. It is. It's really related to this. Um, Samsung has released the Galaxy Note Eight, which is a uh, successor to the Galaxy Note Seven, you, which you may remember had all the explosion problems last year. It's a real beast of a phone. It's six point three inches. It does have a beautiful display and a lot of high end features. Um, but they announced today that the, that that particular phone. Um, in different configurations can be up to $999. And it just so happens that um, there are rumors that the new iPhone in the fall, which I presume is an iPhone 8, that that iPhone 8, will, the high-end version, will also be um, $1,000. And the reason why that's interesting to me is because that price used to be, in my head, kind of the price of a medium to high-end laptop. Um, but now medium laptops, even new, especially if you're a bargain hunter, can be well below $600 and buy uh, uh, sometimes even a year or two old premium laptop or a relatively recent medium laptop, um, which I think, um, you know, for a device that, that most people are turning over, at least most tech-savvy people are turning over every year to two, $1,000 is just too much for those devices. And now that carrier subsidies have, have, have left the U.S. market space and you're paying retail prices for phones, you know, which we could debate whether that's good news or not, I think that's a very high-end price, especially for a device that most people are likely to turn over in two to three years. So I guess I start with, um, you know, maybe we can toss this back and forth, Wes. So as as a an iOS family, 
Um, is anyone in the market for a $990 phone at the Friar home? <laughs> clearly, clearly no. Uh, we actually have, we've, I've usually been, I don't know what the right term for this would be, you know, the, the early adapting one, the, the, the parent who says, I need the new device. So I've usually been the one that did, you know, upgrades and then my wife and then kids on down with ages. We just have broken with that tradition. Uh, my son's phone was not working with GPS. And so we just went ahead and got him a seven. Um, frankly, I'm hesitant to, to move off of my phone because I have so much two-step stuff tied to it, you know, and it's kind of a pain to do that. So I don't look forward to that, but no, we are not looking to spend that much money. And, you know, part of the reason we switched to T-Mobile and I think you guys switched uh, a while back is that became a viable option in Montana. We were, we were just saving a lot of money over AT&T and the tethering. Oh my gosh. You know, my, my work, um, and my professional, you know, blogging and writing and other things require me or, you know, make it so that I really need that tethering feature. And so it just, uh, you know, caused pain to no end to have really limited tethering with AT&T when I went, was with them earlier and then went back to them a little bit. So, yeah, I, I think at some point we're going to plateau kind of like we are at laptops now, where when you look at the, the, the basic functionality that yep. teachers need, we didn't do this. It's going to be harder when you're used to a full-blown Mac to go down to a Chromebook if if you haven't, you know, had laptops or let, let's look talk even I'll mention names. You know, Oklahoma City Public Schools has had pretty crummy Windows laptops in the hands of their teachers for years, and it's just astounding how slow they are and and how poorly functional they are. A, a, a new Chromebook with four gigs of RAM is going to seem like a rocket ship in many cases. And so it depends on your context, but, but I really think we're reaching a plateau with laptops as far as performance. Most of what teachers are going to need to do is probably going to be met by a Chromebook. Um, and I, and I would suspect we might get there with phones, but to your point about the continuity features, I mean, that's, you know, what Apple is trying to, right. to do is to really differentiate themselves and, and want you to be part of that whole ecosystem. And um, AirPlay is one of the biggest, the biggest game changers. So um, I, I guess I need to dabble more and, and, and talk to other IT folks and people that are supporting, you know, Chrome and, and Android and see how that's going in school. I would, I would guess that Google is going to want to step up to that, right? Because with the Chromebook, they want to have a robust uh, capability for, for students and teachers to share content. And I'm sure they're not ignoring that with AirPlay. Um, but as of yet, there, there isn't, hasn't been a, a great delivering cross-platform, you know, Miracast, these other things. It, right. They all kind of suck, you know, compared yep. to, compared to um, the iPhone. AirPlay. Yeah, well, and you know, the one thing there that's, that's also critical is that solving the enterprise problem for AirPlay, which wasn't always the case early on, AirPlay was a pretty big mess in, in, in enterprise computing, which means that if you plugged in an Apple TV um, into your network and were able to connect wirelessly via your iPad, your, your MacBook, um, or your iPhone, it oftentimes couldn't see the AirPlay devices. And they've done a lot of work in the last particularly 24 months to make that an elegant feature, and Chromecast is getting there. I think there are ways to install them enterprise-wide, but the, the bottom line is is that um, 
you know, like those are the features that should work really well. And they're like, even, even when you buy a high end projector that has a wireless, uh, a component to it, the one I have used the most, I've taught in classrooms, um, uh, before that use, uh, Epson high end projectors that have a wireless app you can download and broadcast to it. It's still pretty wonky and, and not super great. And so those are examples of features that, you know, now that, 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 uh, AirPlay is a little more consistent and is able to be uh, rolled out in an enterprise environment. That's, that's pretty great. Um, I would also add that the release today of the Galaxy Note 8 is uh, is super interesting. Um, $1,000 um, is, uh, um, uh, I believe, $900 is the starting price, um, and then they work their way up from there. And I'm assuming things like like the amount of storage space on the phone is probably the differentiator. Um, but the bottom line is is that if phones are going to be, you know, twice the price of, uh, you know, middle-end laptops, you know, I think cheaper phones will almost certainly become, you know, something to compete with. And isn't it interesting in the developing world, right? I mean, yeah. if we were to be in India or China or many other places, you know, we're, it, this is not reality. I, it strikes me it's a little bit like the way that, um, you know, loans underwrite the, the auto industry, right? How many people can afford to go out and just purchase out of pocket a brand new vehicle? Most folks can't, so they're going to finance the car or lease or whatever. And, you know, that's the route we've taken with phones. And the industry is, is shifting in, in terms of, you know, I mean, you can buy them outright, et cetera, but it's just loans and, and, and uh, being able to buy on credit, I think, plays a, a big role into this. And so, right. you know, it, there'll be an opportunity, um, and maybe maybe it's there today, to say, hey, you know, I don't have to have that latest phone. Uh, and if you wait a couple years, it's probably pretty remarkable, you know, what you can get. In fact, Jason, well, I still haven't decided you think I ought to go to Egypt in November? <laughs> I've been in, I've been invited to go to Cairo to present. Uh, there's no honorarium, of course, but I'm honored to be in, to be included. Um, and uh, anyway, yeah, if whether I would go there or not, uh, anytime I travel internationally, I'm going to take seriously the things we've been discussing about customs and folks sucking information off of your phone, and you know, probably travel with a with a burner phone. So. Well, and, you know, um, the great thing about phones becoming expensive is there is a great both aftermarket for phones now. There are places that, um, um, you know, will uh, take phones and buy them off you use, refurbish them, resell them again. Gazelle.com is the place I would go for that. Uh, they buy old phones and they then flip them. Well, Walmart has places where you just, and even our mall, too, where you just put your phone in, right, and then you you know, can get, get your credit. Oh, wow. I mean, it's a that's vending awesome. machine trade-in. Isn't that yep. just crazy? Yep. That's, that's really great. And then yeah. I've mentioned these a couple of times in terms of the show, but you know, Amazon sells um, Amazon prime phones, which they have four or five different models that you can get, you know, a, sometimes a substantial savings. The one I purchased, it was $50 less with, you know, Amazon features on it, which means that there's an ad on the lock screen, um, which I don't find particularly offensive. Um, and, you know, for 50 bucks, I don't at least. And, you know, those, that's a premium phone ish for $170 that works on all four carriers that's unlocked. And I've been able to move it from carrier to carrier without issue. And, you know, I guess that's the good news is, is that unlike a few years ago where the, the kind of secondary phone market beyond the premium phones was, pr- they were pretty terrible phones. There's now a lot of great options. So I guess if you're looking for the bright side of the thousand dollar phone is that the $200 phone and, you know, the used $150 phone, this, uh, Galaxy Note 4 was, 
um, you know, a seven hundred dollar purchase if you bought it new, unlocked in in two thousand fourteen, as I think when it was released, maybe two thousand early two thousand fifteen. But the bottom line is is that this phone cost me one hundred forty dollars on eBay, um, and you know it's worked great. I you know bought a new case for it and called it good. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting piece, and you know obviously these markets are going to have to figure out a way to shake it out. So I'd like to, there's a, a couple of things I hope we'll get to. We're about halfway through the show. Uh, we haven't mentioned, uh, well, number one, shout out to Peggy George in our chat room. Glad to have you with us as always, Peggy. And uh, also that you can get all the links, including others we will probably not talk about, on edtechsr.com slash links. Um, I hope to get to some militarization of, of computation articles that relate to cyber command and, and uh, killer robots and some things like that. But first, I want to talk about this article from Open Culture on August 5th, which I think we have maintained in our show notes, you know, for more than any other article. Probably we've, we've had this on there for three weeks. But the article is called How Information Overload Robs Us of Our Creativity, What the Scientific Research Shows. So, Jason, I think you've, you've talked several times about acknowledging uh, interruption and the role that interruption, notifications, things like that, you know, play has that changed your workflow and how you, you know, get into a project and, and the ways in which you open yourself up for either interruption, distraction? Uh, what does that look like for you? It, it has. And, and part of it for me, and I mentioned last week the Pomodoro technique, um, which actually I got some interesting uh, people back telling me on Twitter about that after we had mentioned it on the show. And then uh, Wes, you had posted a couple links about it. Pomodoro technique is about, you know, um, trying to find a way to to sustain a chunk of time where you're concentrating and then giving yourself a brief break and then jumping back into that again. And it's 25 on, five off for five cycles. And then you get a full 20 minute break before you jump back into it again. And at work, what I do is my five minute break is actually a swing through the hallway. So I, I take some steps. I try to get my blood pumping and I can concentrate back into it until my timer goes off again. And I found that both at work and then when I'm at home working on a project, it is a great way to keep me kind of sustained for a while that gives me the opportunity to take a break if I really want it. And so part of that is turning things off like the notifications on my phone. Um, I've spoken on this issue to a number of teachers now, and I'm very convinced by the research which says that notifications are um, and, and the cell phone itself it are both, you know, can be very disruptive to the kind of thinking, creativity and focused effort that you take to get things done and then I'd be convinced for younger folks that are in the learning environment really for learning um so I yeah I've, I've taken this very seriously and I am interested anytime there is a perception that that uh, research is confirming what I think to be true and a lot of people would also argue that cell phones are great but if they become distraction machines you have to take control yourself as a tech savvy user and do something about that Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm uh, not modeling great uh, self-care and mindfulness and all those kinds of things at this time of the year. I will say, though, that I uh, had a birthday on Sunday and my wife's gift was some yoga. And uh, boy, that was that was great. And we have talked about doing that. And um, I, I really need that. And I think <laughs> part of what should define folks who are uh, very wanting to be very aware of of the roles and impacts of technology, you know, is going to be some some marked differences than than perhaps the behaviors that you might just see from from people just getting a phone and you know not changing settings and just kind of using it 
quote unquote naturally or the way that it might seem to be, you know, of course I needed to, to check this all the time and use this all the time. So I'm um, trying to be a little bit more mindful about, you know, how quickly I'm looking at, at the phone and what I'm looking at and how, you know, I'm, how it affects you, right? Because yep. our, our brains are, are amazing things and we are becoming cyborgs. We've, we've talked about this on the show before. And, um, you know, we're, we are changing. I think our brains are changing and I think we're going to just, we're go- we, I think we had an article last show or a couple shows ago where somebody was talking about, you know, these dramatic changes that we're going to see in, in, in humanity as a result of augmentation uh, through technology, through, through different ways that that's happening. So, Anyway, I uh, I think I'm going to take a look at that. How do you pronounce it? Pomodoro effect? The Pomodoro technique. Technique, yeah. And if people yep. want to look that up, that was last show, episode 61, if you want to go back to those links. Um, so and I give I one other shout-out related to that. Um, on September 1st, I think is the day. No, I'm sorry, September 5th, um, Manoush Zamarodi, who we've given a couple of shout-outs to here on the podcast. She's the host of WNYC's podcast, um, Note to Self, formerly known as New Tech City. And I'm a weekly listener. I believe that, that Wes is an often weekly listener as well. And it's kind of a, you know, society and tech podcast. And uh, uh, over a year ago, she utilized a project called the Bored and Brilliant Project, which was that she wanted us to be more mindful about, you know, the way our phones uh, interact, the way we interact with phones. And then the upside of that was that, um, uh, that the research that is, is cited in, in the articles we're talking about tonight, that if, you know, with constant distraction and constant information available to us, not being bored means that we're lacking some creativity, that we oftentimes deny ourselves the kind of creative time that boredom brings to us. And that book is going to be out on September 5th. And so mm-hmm. I have purchased the uh, a, a pre, a pre-purchase of it, so it will come right to my Kindle when it shows up there. But I'll put the link in the show notes um, I'm really excited to read about that because I, I that's where I started thinking about this a lot was based on Miss um, uh, Amarotti's uh, really excellent podcast series related to distraction in tech. And so I am looking forward to reading that book. And I think it's a great resource if you'd like to think about this issue. Excellent. And if I could suggest an article that segues to that a bit when they talk about, you know, distraction and social media and the ways in which app developers want us to, you know, to spend more and more time. How about this Jon Snow article, Facebook, A Threat to Democracy, BBC, August 24th? Want to comment on that? Um, I do. A really great article. Um, the article is related to the notion that the shareable world that we live in is creating um uh, uh, well, it's 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 essentially making the fake news problem that much worse. That fake news wouldn't be as much of a problem if it wasn't being initially shared and then amplified dramatically by social media platforms. And it kind of goes back to the fact that we've introduced this shockingly effective way to stay connected in the world, and yet we haven't developed norms yet or rules. And, and maybe it's about laws too, but we're not really treating these tools in, I, I think, an ethically sustainable way that, um, you know, we've got so much power now to amplify our views or others' views, you know, uh, exponentially via the Internet. And social networking tools allow you to become extra um, potent in that particular regard, right, because you can take your view or others' views and, and spread them rather quickly. And what I think this article does a good job of discussing is that, um, that's a real problem for us, particularly in Western style democracies, because, um, you know, the bottom line, um, really, uh, 
bad misinformation is now easily spreadable to the masses with almost no tools available beyond your gumption and research to be able to delete um, between the two. So I guess I'd start with, and we've talked about the fake news problem before, but, you know, Wes, we're both very you know, heavy social media users. It's mostly in terms of personal connections on Facebook. And I think we both use Twitter a lot in regards to um, you know, professional connections with folks. But, um, you know, where's the balance at between these two? I mean, where do we balance the obviously massive effect positively of these tools with the fact that, that they can be utilized um, to spread misinformation as much as they are to spread good, positive information? I think there's an important role for the companies to step up to Twitter and Facebook and these social media companies. I think we talked in the show last week about this idea of not just being a common carrier. There's this idea in U.S. FCC legislation that, you know, if you are a carrier of a phone service, you know, I mean, you're just carrying the line, you know, you're just transmitting it. And you have to be careful in this, right? Because, you know, filtering is censorship. And at some level, you know, values and and things that people disagree with enter into this because, you know, not everybody is going to be upset by, by let's say, neo-Nazi hate speech. Actually, the, the pastor at our church wrote an editorial in the Edmond paper. Edmond's a suburb to the north, and that's where we still go to church. And uh, it was a pretty balanced piece, and it was basically saying, I think, let's not just rush out there and, and condemn and judge and it was it was trying to encourage us to listen to each other, but there was a person on Facebook who was, I guess, a friend of his, but pretty upset at him not just condemning the Nazis and let's just let's just condemn them. And so, you know, this stuff is really contentious. But I'm very glad to see that Facebook as well as Twitter, uh, since the election, have stepped up more, at least rhetorically, to acknowledging responsibility to not just let anything get shared, anything be advertised. You know, they have responsibilities. And, of course, it's a hidden algorithm, right? We don't have the open source algorithm to look at to see how are they populating our news feed. You know, Twitter is now not just showing you what's live when you go into your feed, but you can do some things, I think, you know, turning things on and off. But, but generally, most users are going to see things that are algorithmically moved up higher in the feed when you haven't been on for a while, which might be beneficial and helpful to you. But I guess what I'm trying to say is there definitely is a responsibility that companies have to not just be a common carrier and say, well, that's just what we're, you know, letting people transmit. Um, I'm reminded of Rwanda, right? We had the Rwandan genocide. I don't know how many years ago, but there, you know, and, I, and I'll have to go look at IMDb for the, the movies. I've seen some, some pretty good movies about that, read some, some things about that. The radio station was huge, you know, fanning the flames of, of people's anger. It was the, the, the Tutsis and the Hutus, I think, are the, or the two tribes. And uh, just horrific, you know, what happened there. But the role of media was really, really important. And the role of the media is, is gigantic here as well. So I think that when we talk about ethics and we talk about the need for students to take the ed tech situation room spin to schools, uh, you know, we need for students to be um, thinking about the ethical implications of these kinds of things. Uh, you know, students that we have in school today are, are not only going to be developers, they're going to they're going to be executives, they're going to be responsible decision makers in different kinds of organizations 
And I think we want them to step up to responsibilities. I guess we could couch it in terms of citizenship, right? If, if we're citizens, if we're, we're members of this, you know, community, whether it's our local, you know, community, our state, our nation, our world, we have rights and responsibilities. And, um, I think the, the corporate, the, we all do, right? It's not just let's put it on Facebook and Twitter, but, you know, right. we as individuals have responsibilities for what we share and we don't share. That means trying to vet the things that we're sharing. Um, and But I, I totally agree with you that we haven't worked this out. You know, we're in early days with this. And while I'm a really big advocate for empowering voices, um, you know, it's it's – I don't know that I anticipated who did, right, that – that such outlier voices would would gain such volume and such influence, especially over the political process in Europe and the United States. Yep. Have you have you been surprised by what's happened with social media in the last the last year, Jason? I, I, I am, if for no other reason than it feels like that um <laughs> it makes people like you and me feel like like kind of like e hippies, right? Like that we obviously think that um, these are extremely powerful tools and they connect people and by providing everyone a voice that that's very democratizing. Right. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, not everyone holds views that are palatable to the general public. And by giving everyone a microphone that comes with implications that we're not necessarily ready for. And, um, you know, I kind of think about it in terms of, of newspaper commenting. Right. Obviously, there is and I think I mentioned this in the past. There's something called the online disinhibition effect which is the notion that when you're perceived when you perceive that you're anonymous or you're otherwise not able to be known by others and you can't see reactions face to face, that that creates a um, uh, 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 almost a, a, a an enhanced uh, uh, onus to 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 uh, express very aggressive opinions, you know, no matter what the content politically are. That's helped what explains why newspaper commenting sections are so, um, you know, kind of terrible places to be. Um, but the super bottom line is, is that, you know, we all believe, I think, that these technologies are powerful and effective. Um, but, you know, power, well, with great power comes great responsibility. And so, you know, talking about ethics, seeing things in terms of what these tools can and can't do is an important part of this process. So, you know, we talk a lot about you should be teaching more about things like ethical use of technology in schools. This is a primary example of where this, these lessons are so important. Absolutely. And I think that uh, the role that empathy plays in all of this is really yes. key, too, right? Because that's one of the missing pieces. Um, I had a shout out last week to an article, which was a not a not safe for work article, which I'm not often often sharing. Um, but it was it was this analysis. And I think you've got an article about trolls, too, which might be might, maybe a segue to it. But it was trying to understand the the outbreak of um, of troll culture and you know, part of what the article was saying was that, that that we may have a generation of folks with with little empathy for others, and you know the the role in which technology has played in allowing folks to to maybe not socialize and not you know see people face to face. You know, is is playing into that. So, how about the the troll article? Well, this was uh, what was that from Rico? Yeah, the troll article is interesting only because it shows where, like, it gives a, a physical location to where most trolling commenters come from, and it does go through a state by state analysis. And it's probably more visual eye candy than it is anything else. Um, you know, it's the it, interesting to look at. Good. Um, 
uh, good um, uh, uh, clickbait style headlines. So it's it's an interesting place to go. But um, the bottom line is is that uh, it, there is a regional bend to you know being an internet troll. And so um, I would make no comment related to that. Um, you know, based on particular parts of the country. But yeah, there definitely is an interesting differential. Um, I am pretty happy to report that Montana seems to be pretty light. Um, on the um, whole trolling phenomenon. And in fact, um, I would commend um, Oklahoma, sir, that, that we're light on the trolling phenomenon, and Oklahoma's even less than, than Montana. So we come from kind states, is, is the way I'll state it, at risk of offending 48 other states' viewers. But um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting map of, of where a lot of the trolls come from. And apparently Vermont is like troll central. Um, it is one wow. of the highest troll rates um, um, in 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 the United States, twelve point two percent of commenter or comments from Vermont are hostile. Wow, what a what an interesting analysis that would be for students to try to take that up. And you know, one of the little things in this, what 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 is what are the kinds of things we should have our kids doing? Working with data and doing analyses that involves you know very multiple variables and and looking at correlations. I mean. Certainly in high school and college, we need to be doing that. And so it'd be interesting to see all the things that are correlated to that map, right? Like what else is correlated? Like maybe the digital divide is correlated. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Oklahoma has a lot of folks who are not as connected. Maybe Vermont is one of the most connected cities. When I was up there with my wife at the beginning of this month, you know, they were talking, they were bragging about giga, gigabit city. You know, I think as far as being able to provide gigabit internet to the home, that's way more bandwidth than we're enjoying currently. So anyway, there's a little educational spin on that. I mean, I love maps. I think it's, it's very compelling, the complexity and the kinds of things that can be conveyed with a map. But at the same time, you know, Jason's approaching his defense of his dissertation. I've, I've had that pleasurable experience myself. You know, I think part of what you emerge from having gone through a doctoral program is, you know, looking at, at research and, and trying to encourage yes. people not to rush to judgment. There's a correlation that doesn't necessarily mean causality, a uh, very difficult thing to establish in terms of, um, you know, educational research particularly. So, but that's a, that's a great map and that, that could be a great writing prompt and, and a great discussion topic to, to talk about some really important stuff in terms of, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people unaware of, the dynamics that are happening with trolls and trolling. And I, I would bet there are a number of teens who have experienced that at some level or just that nastiness may not have any idea about that. So there's a, there's a good digital citizenship parenting angle to this as well to say, right. you know, talk about this with your kids, talk about this with your students. Yep. Absolutely. So, Hey, uh, could I take us to this, uh, the militarization stuff? It looks like, please do. Okay, so I put these on the show notes under under a category, and sometimes we'll actually we usually do this on the on the uh, Google Doc, and I put this under militarization of computation, and so uh, I'll just kind of hit a hit a few of these, and then and then we'll we'll get the official Jason Knifer responses. Uh, for, <laughs> first one is an interesting article. I had I don't know if you realize this, but we've had four U.S. Navy ships in like the last two months that have had pretty significant collisions. I think. The one before the McCain, the Fitzgerald, weren't, weren't there like 11 sailors maybe killed? Yep. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big deal. 
And so someone had mentioned the other day to me, oh, I wonder if it was hacked. You know, I wonder if these are getting hacked. And so this is an article from the Council on Foreign Relations, August 23rd, a cyber norms hypothetical. What if the USS John S. McCain was hacked? And they open this by saying, you know, basically the studies and the inquiries that they've done have shown, you know, poor seamanship, other kinds of factors. In fact, not having as much time maybe at sea and behind simulators or behind the wheel. I don't know. There's, there's interesting technology things like this, how maybe the Navy, uh, you know, just like with, with pilots. And this is true of commercial pilots too. A lot of times there's really not nearly the amount of landings and things like that, that they need to have real world before they're, you know, stepping up and, and flying people around. But, um, that points to, you know, what is going to be on people's mind in all kinds of circumstances now, whether it's an election or it's some kind of an accident, like what role did cyber operations play in that? You know, was it at play? Um, and so I commend that article. And then the next one uh, is a, is from CyberScoop. So we've gone from very credible to <coughs> never heard of them before. Uh, Trump orders U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, receive new authority to conduct cyber warfare. And by the way, Jason, as a, as a debater, I think you'll appreciate that the article before goes into the law of the sea and international <laughs> law. I remember when I was a senior in high school, we had a, a guy who's a fairly strange dude and his whole case was on law of the sea. And we're like, what is that? But yep. anyway, it's pretty interesting about the corridors that, of, of open travel and, you know, territorial waters and all this stuff. Okay. So, this is a pretty big deal that Trump has has ordered the elevation of Cyber Command to be its own independent command in the United States military structure. Currently, it's under the National Security Agency. And so I think this is just a further evidence, a sign of the times, if you will, of the importance of, of cyber, the importance of technology on our lives and the ways in which um, you know, governments as well as all other institutions are, are needing to, to face this and, and elevate the importance that they're, they're putting on this. I think, or I think it was last week that we had an article talking about whether or not companies should be allowed to hack back. Um, and you know, that's, yeah, that was the Atlantic on July 14th, 2017, when companies get hacked, should they be allowed to hack back? I mean, there's really, you know, interesting and important, elements to all this in, in terms of international law, in terms of, you know, defining new norms. Back to that first article on the naval ships, it said, you know, if there was a kinetic event, if people were killed, they were injured, uh, equipment was harmed, um, then, you know, that could constitute something that self-defense could be, you know, invoked and, um, you know, in, in, under international law, folks could be held criminally liable for things that they've done, you know, if, if those things, you know, lead to um, kinetic, meaning, you know, actual right. phys physical harm that's being done to people or property. So connecting to that as well, uh, on my birthday, August 20th, Elon Musk led 116 experts at the United Nations in an open letter uh, calling for an outright ban of killer robots. And this was from The Guardian. And it's interesting because I, I put a link to this. 
I, I, when I was teaching STEM it, in UConn, I love to do curiosity links with kids to get them talking and thinking and just, you know, seeing sort of current events with technology. And in 2015, we were talking about this United Nations convention that was going on, international convention, looking at whether or not robots should have the ability to autonomously kill. And some of my students recorded a little three-minute video, you know, talking about this and the sort of the pros and the cons. Um, so... Uh, it's it's pretty pretty fascinating, and some of the some of the quotes from this article um, are you know talking about how this isn't science fiction, this isn't the future, you know this is today. Um, quote: Le- Lethal autonomous weapons are already in use. Samsung's SGR A1 Sentry gun, which is reportedly technically capable of firing autonomously, but is disputed whether it's deployed as such, is used along the South Korean border uh, of the two and a half mile wide Korean demilitarized zone. Um, quote, unlike potential manifestations of AI, which still remain in the realm of science fiction, autonomous weapon systems are on the cusp of development right now and have a very real potential to cause significant harm to innocent people along with global instability. And it really is a fairly dystopian vision. So, Jason, where do you stand? Do you think Elon Musk is on the right side here or do we just need to embrace the military industrial complex, hold them close and say, you know, take us into the future and let let the clone army fight our fight our battles. I think the biggest problem we're running into is that in the same way that we're having problems adjusting to, you know, instant information 24 seven. Right. It's disrupting sleep patterns. It's disrupting social patterns, yada, yada, yada. Um, we're not really we have a real sense of where this is going to go, right? We have a lot of science fiction related to this that, that seems to be super scary um, and Skynet, uh, you know, bearing down on us and yada, yada, yada. But I do think that a ban first, uh, create meaningful rules later is a pretty reasonable response um, because I just don't know where we're, we just don't know where this is going to go, right? Like I, I, you know, I, I keep thinking to myself, you know, my cell phone's amazing, but if I put this in my hand um, in, you know, t- 20 years, ago even um or let's go 30 years ago um and said that this is going to be my thing right like this is going to be available to me every song ever is available on my phone videos all movies of all time is is available by phone that kind of goes around with me i would have been blown away by that and so um you know the fact that that the future is now means that we have to take more proactive steps and it's funny you should mention law of the sea i've I've cut law of the sea articles uh, cards before so i'm familiar with the phenomenon but that's actually useful and or useful um, uh, analog here to to the internet as well. The part of the reason why the law of the sea became necessary at some point was because um, you know we thought the sea was infinite and that we would never really run into each other. It's it's part of the reason why in 2017 some people are shocked that we're running out of of seafood is because we're overfishing the oceans because we never thought that we'd get to the point where we did. Well, you know the uh, the the network, uh, the internet, um, digital devices, we're kind of in the same position right now where it seems like that there is infinite amount of space for things to develop and grow, but at some point we're going to run into the kind of natural reality of that. And so if we can be proactive now about, you know, I, I hate bands for band's sake, right? I hate bands that, that they could, don't come with much thought. But until we have a sense of where things are going, a ban in this context is probably a good start to a long-term conversation about where these fit inside of our world. Um, you know, I, it's terrifying to me, a robot war, right? 
But if robot wars are fought nowhere near humans, right, maybe like in outer space to where that's away from where there's no human damage, a robot war might be more interesting than a, you know, where humans are involved in that process. And, you know, there's a thousand that science fiction writers will tell me why I'm an idiot for saying that. But, you know, there these discussions have to be had. So if the band gets the, the ball rolling on the discussion, then so be it. And I think that it's really, really good to be educated about these kinds of issues, very yeah. contemporary and very important, right? You know, World War I, and there's a history of this happening in warfare. The mini ball in the Civil War had more lethality than the generals that graduated West Point, and this is why Pickett's charge was, you know, so crazily horrific in terms of damage. World War I, trench warfare, right, the machine gun. I mean, we just – we weren't ready for the, the level of lethality. In this article, they said a couple things that were uh, sort of thought-provoking for me. Number one, <clears throat> that the two previous revolutions in weapons and warfare was, number one, gunpowder, number two, nuclear weapons. And they're saying that autonomous weapons you know, have the potential in a very bad way to be the third revolution. The other thing they talked about were banned weapons, you know, chemical weapons being one, and then the other, like, blinding weapons, you know, creating weapons that immediately blind people. Like, that's banned by the United Nations. And I, and I would say that it's important for us to talk about, we've mentioned the law of the sea tonight, which is interesting, and we, you know, talk international law. Like, we need to be talking about the importance of these things as citizens. We've had some, some rhetoric actually close to you, Peggy. They're down in Phoenix uh, recently with a, a certain elected official who is, uh, you know, talking talking about you know, a very uh, protectionist and, and inward-looking focus. And uh, I believe we do not need to step back into the past. I think, you know, it's – my wife's a big Star Trek fan. You know, when are we going to move forward into a, a much more enlightened age where we're taking care of people to a much greater degree and we are, you know, thinking about how we're internationally collaborating and so I think there's a role in, in schools to be talking about these kind of things and thinking about citizenship. Um, you know, fortunately, you know, when I was born and Jason too, and we've, we've lived, we, we didn't experience any of the world wars. In fact, I was born, you know, when Vietnam was drawing to a close. Um, and, and the fact that now with, with uh, the way that we wage war in the United States, we have an all-volunteer force, which is – it's not a mercenary force, but, you know, in some ways – we are bribing a lot of young people with the promise of, of college money uh, and, and income, you know, to go fight these wars for us. And if we don't have somebody who's related to us or a neighbor or whatever, you know, we just may not realize the cost that's being borne by many folks, uh, including what, I guess, 4,000 more, more they are going to head back to Afghanistan. So important stuff to talk about, uh, important technology connections to make. And I would say just connections to bigger things that are, you know, already important in our curriculum like citizenship and drawing in some things that people may or may not be aware of. So, Jason, I am afraid we have talked past the top of the hour already. I do not know how this happens so quickly. <laughs> it seems to happen quicker every week. So uh, shall we geek of the week it? Sounds good. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I okay. had a very – wonderful conversation with uh, some of our high school history teachers this last week. And I thought we were just going to talk Apple TV and they ended up asking me all about other ideas for technology integration and projects. 
one of the things we talked about was ways uh, that students can interact around text and that teachers can have greater visibility into the thinking of students and, you know, what kinds of tools are available. And so I put a link up in the show notes. I'd send a couple tweets out. Um, and one of these was, was a result of that. This is from Ed Surge on June 27th, the power of nonprofit acquisitions curriculum rises from the dead. Um, there've been two products that I've been familiar with. Uh, the first being subtext, which was purchased by Renaissance learning and has basically been killed, uh, which is a wonderful iPad app that allowed you to read books together, see what each other was highlighting, have comments right inside the text. And the other one that's been like that is Curriculet, um, which was started by actually the, the son of one of our librarians here in Oklahoma up in Enid, uh, but was not able to turn a profit. And so this nonprofit group has taken it over. So that is a, a, a tool to look at. But my geek of the week is called Hypothesis. And Hypothesis is a collaborative web annotation tool similar to what, you know, Digo would let you do, but allowing you to create groups to use tags. And so I've actually started on uh, one of those articles about the Elon Musk calling for the ban of killer robots. I went ahead and did some public annotations in Hypothesis, and I tagged those EdTech SR. And I'm going to play with that here in the next uh, coming week and kind of see how that how that works, both because I want to do that myself and then also find out for my teachers. But shout out to uh, Dog Tracks, Kevin Hodgson, who was the one who shared that on Twitter. And would love to have any feedback if anybody's playing with interactive web annotation, article annotation, you know, ebook annotation tools, especially with students, would love to hear more about that. But Hypothesis looks like a pretty promising uh, open platform for doing that. Yeah, just looking at it myself, what a great, uh, what a place to do that. It took me two seconds to figure it out and uh, nice app. So great, great share. Thanks, Wes. So um, I'd like to extend on something that I talked about uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, I've been listening to um, uh, the new McAfee podcast called Hack, which is a really great uh, security podcast. And one of the things that um, I've been doing religiously for at least four or five years that I'm now starting to talk to more people about due to the real risks that exist is how to be safe in public Wi-Fi. We obviously live in a very um, uh, prolific public Wi-Fi environment. Uh, there's hotspots available um, in, in lots of different locations now. Um, but a lot of people, even very tech savvy users, don't know the kinds of, 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 um, um, I guess, strategies you can utilize in order to secure yourself, um, appropriately on those public Wi-Fi spaces. And so I'm sharing a really great, um, article from August 16th from PC Magazine called 14 Tips for Public Wi-Fi Hotspot Security. And it details the kind of, uh, uh strategies you want to take now, um, in order to, um, uh, make yourself a little safer in public Wi-Fi environments. Uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat about picking the right Wi-Fi networks, not clicking on things that you don't know for sure are intended for you to be on, um, how to avoid what's sometimes called uh, man-in-the-middle attacks, um, and how to be kind of smart, safe, and savvy um, as a user. And so great article from PC Magazine, 14 tips on how to secure yourself in public Wi-Fi. And, of course, everyone, let's be safe out there. And thank, thank you, Jason, for recommending that McAfee podcast. I did listen to that after the show, and fantastic. You know, it, it just definitely makes you more aware of what can be done, makes me want to delete many of the common Wi-Fi SSIDs or network IDs that I have saved because that's one of the quickest ways that people do it, and they do that in that show is, you know, they pick a, a, a network ID that a lot of people will automatically join 
And so think about whether or not you want your device to automatically join and also think about how many you want to save because there's there's a lot of bad guys out there, yeah. folks. We don't want them to get you. So true. Okay, Wes, um, tell us where we can find you on the Internet. Well, I am still at speedofcreativity.org, and I'm W. Fryer on Twitter, and I uh, am going to hopefully be – um, making a few updates to some books. That is one of my fall goals, but I've got to be doing some time, uh, time shifting to do that. So yeah, playing with media 2011, right? Who was doing that in 2011? We need an update. Yep. Here, here. And by the way, great textbook that I actually used in context of a pre-service teacher class at the University of Montana. So I'm applauding the updates. Um, my name is Jason Neifer, and you can find me on uh, Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, and I blog at the Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And this is the Ed Tech Situation Room, and we're here usually on Wednesday nights, but occasionally we shake things up to keep things interesting. Um, at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, we do broadcast live, so keep an eye on our Twitter feed, EdTechSR, is where you can find us on Twitter. And every article we refer to, in the EdTech Situation Room is available um, on our link page at our website, website edtechsr.com. And even if we don't get to an article or if you want to read more deeply about uh, it, uh, one of the articles we refer to, that's the place to go to get more information. So we wish you a great week uh, uh, whenever you happen to be listening to this. And you can join us next week on Wednesday for the next edition of EdTech Situation Room. Have a good night. Good night, everybody.